Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Lena Wen about the public health implications for the current state of the pandemic in the U.S. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She is a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and an on-air commentator for CNN and sometimes MSNBC. I'm sure you've seen her as a medical analyst. Previously, she served as Baltimore's health commissioner. I'm always delighted to talk to her. So thank you for joining us today, Lena. Thank you very much, Jim. I am always happy to speak with you, and thank you for your continued exceptional work and service. Let me start with this question. Uh, given what's going on around the country and in your busy days these days in your work, how is your spirit? <laughs> I love the question. Um, I think that my spirit may be the same answer that I give to where we are in the pandemic, which is that um, I think there are, um, I, I mean, I feel fine and I, I am optimistic in many ways, um, but I'm also worried about what could lie ahead. Um for my spirit personally, I think what fuels me is my children. My baby, my pandemic baby, is now 10 months old. <laughs> What's your baby's name? Isabel. Actually, Isabel. she's almost 11 months old. She was born on April 3rd. I remember that, actually, because we were when we spoke last on this podcast, when COVID-19 was just breaking out in the U.S., uh, we 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 talked a lot about her uh, on the way. Now we are in a much different place. But can get, you give us your best outlook on the state of the pandemic in the U.S. right now? Both the things that are making you hopeful, but also the things about you just said you're concerned about where we're going. Tell us how you see it right now. Well, when you look at the numbers of where we are, things are certainly looking up. We have declining, actually very rapidly declining number of new infections. Our hospitalization rates are less than half of what they were at our peak. We also have declining death rates, even though we just surpassed this awful milestone of half a million deaths from COVID-19, which is something that I still can't quite wrap my mind around. But we do have um, these numbers that are trending in the right direction. And then one could also say we're getting vaccines rolled out, more than a million and a half vaccinations done every day. We have warmer weather on the way. Maybe the worst is behind us. But I'm also not sure that we can necessarily say that because even though we have a lot of people in this country who have some degree of immunity, either from vaccination or from recovery from infection, it's still not the majority of Americans by any means. And I also really worry about the about the variants, these um, mutations that have arisen in the new strains. There is a strain from the UK, the B117 variant, that is more transmissible than the variants that we know. It may also be more lethal. And we've seen in other countries that when it becomes the dominant strain, these other countries have experienced a rapid surge. That could well happen here in the U.S. 
And then there are other variants, the variant from South Africa and Brazil, the B1351 and P1, respectively. These variants may cause reinfection. So someone who's been infected before with COVID-19 may be reinfected with these variants. And they may render the vaccines that we have less effective. And so I think all that is the great unknown. It certainly throws a wrench into any optimism that we have. And my great fear is that complacency sets in, people let down their guard, and we experience a fourth surge. And of course, what would happen after that is more preventable deaths. So when you, I always love it when you appear on TV or right in the post, because you're always honest and clear, and you realize the deeper implications of things. So what you're saying is, while things may be showing some hopeful signs, like the drop in cases or vaccines, vaccinations are spreading, you don't want people to let their guard down or become less vigilant or think we might be okay now. That's exactly right. And it's not to say that we want to scare people either. I mean, if we know that things are looking like they're going the right direction, I think it would be fair to say to people they can increase certain types of activities. I actually have been arguing one of the columns that I just wrote is about um, how we should be providing better guidance to people who are newly fully vaccinated that there are freedoms that come from having both um, vaccinations with Pfizer and Moderna and having 14 days elapse after that to gain optimal immunity, that there are things that people can do. For example, people who have been putting off any kind of essential activities like medical appointments, they should get those taken care of. Or grandparents who have been eager to see grandchildren, it's time for them to see their grandchildren, recognizing it's not zero risk, but the risk is so substantially decreased that we need to do a better job of explaining to people what they can now do in order to preserve their own well-being and mental well-being in other ways. So I really think we need to do a better job of, um, of explaining to people the positives of what's happening, not to frighten people unnecessarily, but to give all the information, understanding that people will have different um um, they have different value systems that will allow them to make different types of decisions in their lives. Well, let's go to that. I was going to bring that up anyway, but you're already on that. So as someone who has just received the first dose of the vaccine just two weeks ago, and will soon get the second alongside millions of other Americans who whose, time, whose turn is coming, who are beginning to get vaccinated and who are eager to return to some greater sense of safety or security or normality, a question on a lot of people's minds as they are getting vaccinated is what is safe and responsible behavior? What does that look like after vaccination? What advice do you have to give? Well, here's what we know and what we don't fully know. What we know about the vaccines is that they are extraordinarily effective at preventing the endpoint that we really care about. And that endpoint is severe disease. People don't really care about getting a fever or sniffles. I mean, it's not pleasant and we don't want to get it, but we're not going to close down society because of mild congestion and a sore throat. What we really care about is if you get together with your loved ones over the holidays or for a birthday party, or if your kids are going to school, are they going to get sick enough that somehow they'll end up in the hospital, have long-term effects and potentially die from COVID-19? What we know from these vaccines is that they are extraordinarily, as in nearly 100% effective at preventing that kind of severe disease. 
And that's really extraordinary. That has the potential of preventing our hospital systems from getting overwhelmed and certainly has the potential of restoring us back to some pretty high degree of normality once people are vaccinated. That said, here's what we don't yet fully know. We don't really fully know if being vaccinated means that you will no longer be a carrier of coronavirus. That is, you could have the virus and be able to transmit it to others, um, even if you don't get sick yourself from it. Now, there are um, increasing numbers of studies that show that probably by getting the vaccine, it also reduces your chance of being a carrier substantially. But we don't know how much. Um, and so that's why the guidance still has to be that even if you're fully vaccinated, you still need to be wearing a mask while in public. You still want to protect yourself and you want to protect others from you in case you are an asymptomatic carrier of coronavirus. In addition, I would not advise for people to, once they're fully vaccinated, to go out and say, now I can do everything. I can go to crowded bars. I can go and, um, and just see everyone without masks, again, because you could still be a danger to others. But that said, there are things that you can do. And I think seeing your family, seeing your loved ones, if the main reason why, as a grandparent, for example, you were not able to see your grandchildren before was out of concern for your health, now that you are vaccinated, traveling should be pretty safe. And the risk of actually infecting members of your family if you take other precautions is so low that I think the substantial benefit outweighs any theoretical risk. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. So uh, as you may have heard, in fact, we've discussed this a bit. There is a new and exciting coalition, really, of interfaith leaders organizing for houses of worship to be vaccination sites, crafting messages of trust and safety, and promoting equitable, racially equitable distribution of the vaccine. We're calling it Faith for the number four for vaccination. It's growing really quickly around the country. It's a wonderful thing to be part of. What advice would you give to faith leaders as they try and navigate and lead through this pandemic crisis? Well, first of all, I want to thank you as the faith, as faith leaders and members of the, of the faith community for your important role in the pandemic thus far and for your increasingly important role going forward when it comes to reaching people about vaccinations. Unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation about vaccines. Also, there are people who are hesitant about vaccines for a number of reasons. Maybe they think that the vaccines were developed too quickly. Maybe they've heard things from some individuals. Maybe they just aren't sure about what to do. We know in public health that the messenger is often just as important, if not more important than the message. Right. Mm -hmm. And for so many people that you serve, you are their most trusted messenger. And so I think you play a very important role in reaching people where they are, whether it's speaking about the importance of vaccines in churches, whether it is having vaccine drives um, in your church, um, whether it is um, enlisting um, members of, of your congregation to go door to door to let people know about vaccine drives and vaccine clinics that are coming um, and um, and also talking to people, understanding the root of their concern and addressing each of these concerns without judgment. I mean, this is not time to say to people, hey, what's wrong with you? And why do you have these views? But rather seeking to understand where people are coming from in order to um, address the concerns with compassion and empathy. Well, that issue is so important. Um, uh, 
when people sometimes they're being vaccinated, what do I do next? But others, while many are very excited and patiently waiting or impatiently to receive the vaccination, others are still hesitant. Uh, so what do you say? What do you want to say to those you approach? And in your community, you serve a lot of marginal uh, people, people in racial minorities, people who are poor, and you, you see a lot of that hesitancy. How do you best approach that to make people, their skepticism and their fear about the vaccination from their history or from just how the healthcare system often makes people feel and are marginal? How do you approach people's hesitancy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really important question. And there's one thing I want to say, Jim, if I can, before I get to that point, because there have been a number of studies released about how the proportion of people vaccinated does not reflect the American population. And in particular, those who are the hardest hit from COVID-19, which are African-Americans, Latino-Americans, indigenous people, and so forth, that um, we know that the number of the people who have been vaccinated thus far tend to be white um, and, um, and, and may not reflect the population of our country and definitely not the population that's most disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I think there is a tendency, and not by you um, at all or by, by others who are listening, but I have heard this narrative of, well, it's because of vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine hesitancy no doubt plays a part, but I also don't want vaccine hesitancy to be used as, a, as an excuse when the reason why many people have not gotten vaccinated yet is actually because of lack of access. When there is a scarce resource and when it's a free for all kind of situation, people who are more privileged will have access to that scarce resource. And I want for us to be addressing the barriers to access, making sure people know where to go, that technology and getting um, signing up with an iPhone isn't the barrier. And so we really need to be doing more when it comes to access. But to your point, there is a real issue with vaccine hesitancy too. And I think that what I would want people to, to know is we need to be approaching people as individuals and not as a monolith, because I know from speaking to my patients that their reasons for having less than what I would hope is ideal vaccine confidence, it's complicated. Some people may have true misunderstandings. For example, I had patients say to me, well, I don't want to get the coronavirus from the vaccine. That's an easy answer because we can say this vaccine does not contain live virus. You will not get coronavirus from the coronavirus vaccine. Some people think that they hear mRNA um, because messenger RNA is the platform used to deliver the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. They think, oh, is that somehow going to interfere with my genetic code? Another easy answer, your genetic code is contained in your DNA, which is in the nucleus of your cell. The mRNA of the vaccine never enters a nucleus of your cell. So it does not impact the gen your genetic code in some way. So a lot of people are worried about speed. And what I say to them is that there were no shortcuts taken in the science, that there were no shortcuts taken in the scientific research or in scientific approval. Um, and that's really important for, for people to hear too. I think some vaccine hesitancy also just comes from people not knowing um, others who are vaccinated. And I think some of that is going to change over time. And again, why I think the role of clergy is really important because you could be vaccinated in front of your, your congregation. And I think that that will make a big difference as people see you as a leader and others who they know who are vaccinated too. And so I hope that people will see the benefit of vaccination 
as a whole, as in this is our best chance for ending the pandemic and protecting one another. I also hope that they all see the benefit of vaccination for themselves, that it allows a degree of freedom to go about our society and to do things that we really have been craving to do, like seeing our loved ones. We can do that again. And the vaccine- Your point about access so. is so, so very important. And one of the motivations of this new interfaith coalition is to provide that. As you know better than most, there are pharmacy deserts in this country. And so pharmacies by themselves or stadiums. And so sometimes houses of worship can get to people and get to people in a trustworthy place with trustworthy people to provide that access. But that racial racial justice in distribution is so fundamental to this interfaith coalition because in fact, as you know, people are afraid of some history, Tuskegee and all the history in the black community. But even as you know, you were the commissioner of health for Baltimore and you could even see in your experience how often people are marginalized within healthcare system. So you're overcoming some of the vaccine hesitancy that some people have, but there's history here. There's history and experience and people's, their own experience with the healthcare system. So you're really helping to overcome that in the way you do what you do. And that's a big part of why this faith coalition, the interfaith coalition has formed in the first, first place for that kind of access and messengers with the access. That's right. I mean, I I do think that um, the um, recruitment of credible messengers is going to be really important and that this has to be ongoing work. Building trust is not going to happen overnight. We also, as the medical community, need to show that we are trustworthy. Um, And you're right. You had mentioned earlier about historical reasons. There are communities that have real historical reasons for distrusting the medical and scientific community. But we cannot attribute everything, again, to distrust. A lot of it also is access, and a lot of it is our lack of outreach. Um, And what I mean is it's not enough to um, just put on social media that there's going to be a vaccine clinic in some area. People may not be on social media. They may not be watching their TV. That door-to-door outreach and in-person outreach is going to be so critical moving forward. And we also have to say that one touch point is not enough. Um, People may say no the first time, but let's come back the second time and explain the reasons and try to understand where people are again. That kind of active outreach is going to be so critical. So we need, we really need in the faith community to, to draw on people like, like yourself to say, how, give us practical ways to increase effective access. Because you're so right. The access point is crucial here more than history, hesitancy. Many, many people want to be vaccinated and for all the reasons that we know so well. So increasing access, you're saying, is critical for us right now. That's right. One of the other um, messages from public health and core principles from public health is that every interaction should be a point of intervention. And so we really need to be reaching people at every turn. So every time that people are going to their church services, every time that people are coming to me in the doctor's office, every time people are going to a pharmacy, every time they're going to go to a grocery store, having additional accurate messages about vaccines, 
giving the opportunity and opening the door to talking about people's reasons for hesitancy. Um, if we know that individuals are going to have difficulty accessing appointments, having members of the church help them be able to access appointments and even go to appointments if transportation is a barrier, um, going door to door, having mobile clinics that are doing outreach, doing pop-up clinics, having churches themselves set up vaccination drives for their, for their congregants and to members of their community. I think it's not one or the other. It's all of the above. All of these types of, um, of, of interventions need to be done. I talked to an imam the other day who has said, well, we're going to be vaccinating people during and after prayers in the mosque. So having that, that available when people come for, for prayer. Uh, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about this controversial issue of teachers and prioritizing teachers and vaccinations and, and safety in schools. And we all see the incredible data of why kids need to come back to school, particularly kids who are more marginal and vulnerable. And yet schools have to be safe for teachers and for other educational personnel uh, who make school possible and the kids and their their parents. So prioritizing vaccination for teachers. How do you believe this should all happen, that we prioritize teachers and also make the reopening of schools uh, safe and, and, and necessary? Well, I think both can be done. Um, I do think that we need to recognize how essential schools are and that our students have really been suffering, that the disparities that we already knew existed are now exacerbated. Um, we've seen students even commit suicide and go without food and just experience just untold trauma during this pandemic. And we really need to get our schools back. But if we then say that schools are essential, then we must also say that the health and welfare of the people who work in schools, the teachers, but not just the teachers, the bus drivers, the custodians, the other school staff and school nurses, that their health really needs to be prioritized too. I mean, we haven't shut down hospitals while we've also said that, that healthcare workers are essential. So why can't we do both? Why can't we vaccinate teachers and make them a priority to vaccinate teachers and school staff now while also getting our schools reopened. I really don't understand the disconnect here. And I think that um, the, actually I'm quite troubled by um, the Biden administration saying that this is just all up to the states. Actually it's not. The federal government can do a lot when it comes to prioritizing teachers for vaccinations. They have already sent, for example, vaccines directly to federally qualified health centers and to pharmacies. Why not also send vaccines directly to school districts or even deploy vaccinators to school districts to vaccinate school staff? Um, if our students being in person is so important, then so should the vaccination of our, of our educators. So you are a doctor and a public health professional who often takes uh, I believe, a wider and deeper view of the moral issues involved in our public systems and priorities. So as you look at all this, what lessons have you learned from all this, the pandemic, for America's future? Well, I think we've learned a lot of lessons in this pandemic. I think we've learned the policy lessons, of course, of why we need a national response, what happens when we have mixed messaging, why we need data or else we're flying blind. I think we've also seen what happens with 
chronic disinvestment, disinvestment in our public health system, and how COVID-19 has unveiled existing rampant disparities, that this virus is not the one that's doing the discriminating. It's our existing um, systems that have led to the disparate outcomes and continue to lead to unequal outcomes when it comes to racial disparities and disparities based on, on income and social economic status as well. I think that this pandemic has also really revealed the degree to which we are so interconnected and that so much depends on our relationships with one another. And I hope that moving forward, there will be a renewed understanding of what it means for us to protect one another, what's our obligation, our duty to each other, and how we can move forward for the betterment of everyone. So you mentioned at the, at the beginning, and we are all feeling uh, in these this week, uh, it's almost impossible to get our minds and hearts around half a million Americans who have lost their lives and how so many of us uh, have had loved ones lose their lives or people that we know. How have you just as a as a doctor, as a professional, as a person, a person of faith, how have you been able to hold on to hope during this very dark and difficult year? Well, part of it is an easy answer in that I hold on to hope through holding my daughter, <laughs> holding my, my baby and and holding my, my toddler son also that I think about the work that I'm doing, the work that we're all doing as about them, as about our children, who as my longtime mentor, the late Congressman Elijah Cummings would say, that our children are messengers to a future that we will never see. That the work that we do is about our, our children and the generations that are yet unborn. And so I think holding on to that is, is, is my North Star. But it's also, I think I also have so much hope because of the incredible work that so many people have already done and continue to do every day. The sacrifices that people are making, the um, the work that individuals are doing in communities all around the country that are deeply transformative and have saved so many lives. Well, we're seeing, uh, there was a lot of frustration and, and, and uh, about the last administration's slow and uncoordinated response and progress. And we're seeing uh, some very different steps now taken by the new Biden administration uh, to make this such a priority. Um, do th those steps, are those steps that you see making you more hopeful now about where we're now headed with this thing? I mean, I'm certainly hopeful because we do have finally a national strategy. We do have much better messaging. We do have vaccinations getting rolled out at increasing speed. But as we discussed at the beginning of this um, segment, I'm still worried because of so many other factors too. Pandemic fatigue is also very real. Complacency is very real. I actually have a quite significant worry that things are going to look good enough by the summer, which I think is great. I want things to look good in the summer, but I worry that it's going to look good enough that people will not get vaccinated and will think, well, others have already gotten vaccinated. You don't need me to be vaccinated too. And then I fear that there is a resurgence come the fall that's going to, again, close down schools, hurt our children even more, and really have deep consequences on our society. Um, so I worry about short-term complacency and what that could bring. Now, I don't know that this is going to happen, 
But I think if it's anything that we've learned during the pandemic, it's that our actions today determine what will happen in the future, that the future is not by itself preordained, that there are things that we can do to make a big difference. So speed and equity are things that we we both need. Uh, and we need to, in fact, take some real hope in what's happening, but not make us uh, complacent and keep us vigilant. So with the core of this, and I'll just wrap up with this, is, is uh, health is, as you know, more than just uh, physical health. It's, it's, it's health that shows us how healthy we are uh, in our bodies, in our, uh, our body as a society, in our relationships, and even in our system. So maybe this health crisis can deepen our understanding of even what we mean by health, public health, moral health, and health in our relationships. I think you're showing us that. I love that way. Yes, I love that way of framing it because health is not just the absence of disease. Um, and physical health alone is not what contributes to our overall health. We really need to be talking about mental health. We need to talk about spiritual health. We need to talk about our health and our relationships with one another. So I, I love your emphasis on this total sense of health and well-being. Well, you're a doctor that has helped us understand that deeper notion of health. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much. And enjoy those kids and stay strong and, and please t- keep taking care of yourself. And you too, Jim. Thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us, Lena. To hear more from Lena Wen, follow her on Twitter at Dr. Le- Let me spell it for you. Dr. Leanna Wen, but it's spelled Lena Wen. Dr. L-E-A-N-A Wen. Dr. Lena Wen. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like it, Jim Wallace. Blessings and thank you to all of you for listening and helping each other get through this time. Blessings on you.